Welcome to Policy Today. Thoughtful discussion of current issues vital to the future prosperity of Washington State. Produced by the Washington Research Council. Hello, welcome to another episode of Common Ground, a podcast from the Washington Research Council. My name is Mary Strau. I'm joined today by my partner in crime, Randy Abrams Karras. And we are joined today by a very special guest. I'm super excited. Uh, Slade Gorton, my former boss. So just FYI, this, at least on my side, this is going to be a completely biased uh, <laughs> interview. Um, former U.S. Senator, former Washington State Attorney General, former state legislator. 9-11 Commission. 9-11 Commission. Uh, member, um, veteran of both the Air Force and the Army, correct? Uh, graduate of Dartmouth and of Columbia Law School. Just all around great guy. I also noticed, um, this is particularly pertinent to our um, podcast, Common Ground, you learn a lot of things from uh, Wikipedia, that uh, Slade, you are part of um, the partnership, it's called the Partnership for a Secure America, which is sort of dedicated to finding bipartisanship in national security and foreign policy. And you're also part of something called the Bipartisan Policy Center. Um, You're on the Board of Trustees of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, which is a museum dedicated to the U.S. Constitution. Oh, and before I forget, um, you are also, obviously, the namesake, the head of uh, the Slade Gorton Internationally International Policy Center at the National Bureau of Asian Research, which is part of the University of Washington. No, it's not no, part. No, it's independent of the, it's independent. the university, uh, though it uses faculty at the university for uh, for, for much of its work. It's uh, got the best possible deal. It's across the street from UW's law school. Yeah. It has the advantages of the university, but it's not a part of the bureaucracy. No, fabulous. Okay, and that's a, a good arrangement. Yeah, <laughs> policy research and um, leadership. It provides uh, internships to young people. Um, and, uh, you know, on a personal note, I was at an event a couple months ago where you were honored for having saved the Mariners, which is another thing I forgot to mention. Slade saved the Mariners (laughs) from leaving Seattle 25 years ago. Um, And it was really moving because some young people got up and spoke um, about what a mentor you are to them and um, how meaningful you've been to them. So um, there's a lot I've missed. If you can go read about Slade online and read about all the other great things. Also, there's a biography, right? Yes. So... You can. There are books written. That's right. There's a book written about you. Um, so there's a lot of lot of directions we could go. However, as we record this, it's the day after the Democratic National Convention ended, and Hillary Clinton gave her speech. Um, and in June, Slade, you wrote a pretty amazing op-ed in the Seattle Times. Um, the headline of which was. And this was included in the body of your op-ed, Pray for a Third-Party Candidate. And uh, (laughs) the tagline was, voters are faced with a choice between a possible fascist and a possible criminal. Neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump is remotely qualified to be president of the United States. Um, It was a pretty damning op-ed. 
And I wonder if you could sort of expand on it and give us your thoughts on the state of this presidential election. Well, the one line in that op-ed that the Seattle Times did not print Mm. was my own title. Oh, what was Which was, A Plague on Both Your Houses. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, But uh, it's clear, just from all of the pollings, that we have the two least acceptable major party candidates for president in history. Now, both of them are underwater from the point of view of the, of acceptability. Uh, and that, in my view, is a, is a failure of, of each of our two major parties. Now, part of it is just historical. You know, my own observation uh, over many years is that almost all of the new recruits for the Republican Party, for the party organization, come in from the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and almost all of the new activists for the Democratic Party come in from the left. Mm-hmm. Now, in both cases, you know, over a period of years, uh, they, they tend to get moderated. If they win, uh, you know, they become the establishment, mm-hmm. and so they become the target of the next generation of activists yes. who come in on their left from the Democrats and their right from the Republicans. But th- that has become so intensified in the last few years, uh, together with the fact that most conservative or moderate Democrats have either quit or lost, as we look at, uh, at Congress. Mm-hmm. And the same thing has happened to most of the fairly liberal or moderate uh, Republicans, mm-hmm. that in Congress now, there's no longer any overlap. Uh, there's right. no Republican who's more liberal than the most conservative Democrat and the other way around. And so what has happened is that there's a huge gap in the middle. Mm-hmm. that neither party uh, you know, represents at all. And the ultimate result of that uh, <clears throat> is uh, that, we have, yeah, that, that we have candidates for both parties who are widely unacceptable. And so the main battle cry of each one of them is, well, she's better than Trump, or well, he's better than Hillary. Which is a pretty darn low a pretty, bar. A pretty, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty low bar to jump over. Yeah. Yeah, it strikes me, um, at, you know, from as someone who's been involved in Republican politics for a while, and I'm certainly no what you'd call a moderate, although I, I guess t- maybe to today's conservatives I probably would be. I think that's true, and I think you're typical of what I said. You certainly came into political activism from the right. Yeah. From the, from the very right end now. And now you're a suspect. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I've been. I've literally been called establishment. I'm like, what? But uh, it seems to me that the, uh, I, I think I'm yeah. going to interject here. Yeah, yeah. Um, because generally, I, I think yes, pe- people moderate as they get older and and understand how the system works. For me, I think that I've moved more to the left. Um, I saw Bernie and I understand that we can't expect purity or perfection from any candidate Um, but for me as as the wife of someone who lost his job in the Great Recession and we've had a hard time recovering from that as someone who's worrying about how I as who's worked for nonprofits my entire Mm -hmm. career um, trying to make the world a better place and, and and leave it better for my 
my family and my kids um, and someone who's going to have to pay for college and retire maybe someday. Bernie was sort of was hitting all of the right notes for me and what bothered me about Hillary was that she she was representing the establishment mm -hmm. that it can't happen, it can't happen, it can't, you know, Bernie's dreaming. But I wanted someone to dream big to give mm -hmm. me hope mm -hmm. that it can happen, um, that the world will be safe, that we're going to try to make peace and make the take steps to make the world a better and less violent place, and that there's going to be a way for my child to pay for college. Um, and that I'm going to be able to retire someday. But you would only have to change a few words of what you just said to be a Trump supporter. I realize mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. except that Trump scares me. Well, no, I and at first that. he made me laugh. Mm -hmm. I think Mary and I oh, yeah, would spend a lot of time <laughs> laughing about it, and then it mm -hmm. started getting real, and Not he so started. Um, I don't, I don't. Just like people don't sense sincerity from Hillary. I don't sense the this, this sincerity from Trump at all, and I don't think that he really cares about working people um, or the middle class or how I'm going to pay for college for my child. I don't think he thinks about it. I don't think that he cares about America at all. I don't think he's proven that he's a patriot. And, you know, Hillary has her flaws, but I think that she has... Has mainly lying about everything when she gets into trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but she's worked for good things. <laughs> so, and I don't, I don't know all of the, the um, I haven't focused on the email stuff. It's, it hasn't been important to me um, because I think others have done similar things and, and so that, that hasn't been a focus for me. But I see that what she's done for children with disabilities, for, for children in general, for health care, for women, and it makes me think that she at least gets it somewhat, <laughs> that she, you know, cares. I find her to have almost no philosophy at all, and that her, uh, her race against Sanders indicated that. She just, uh, uh, when it was at all advantageous to do so, she just moved over and co-opted his positions, trying to leave maybe one degree of difference. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't disagree. And that is why it took me so long, mm. and I'm still not, you know, but, waving but the, the flag. But, but you're, I think you're saying the same thing that uh, I am, in a way. Here we got a system that left us with highly flawed people. Uh, to uh, uh, represent the two major political parties uh, in a national election. And as we sit here and talk right now, I still have hope for a third-party candidate, though really? that can't last much more than a week or 10 days more mm -hmm. uh, until it just becomes a physical impossibility. And I'm in correspondence with a group back east that's working on it, but has not come up with anything at this, uh, you know, at, at this point. And what the, the, the degree of overwhelming dissatisfaction that we see if we don't have a third-party candidate mm -hmm. will be the difference between the vote that the Libertarian and the Green Party candidate get this year from what they got four years ago. Right. Don't be sort of, yeah. Each of them is a yeah. 1% candidate, mm -hmm. and uh, each of them will very likely be in double digits and maybe, you know, and maybe more than that. 
Yeah, they'll be the receptacle for sort of they'll be the, the receptacle for the people that that uh, the reaction to my op-ed when I talked to people, uh, and uh, it was evidenced in uh, um, <laughs> Mike McKay's uh, op-ed a couple of weeks later. Can't remember who he said he was going to vote for, but he was going oh, to write. Yeah, in, he was going to write in some someone's name, oh, and I yeah. tell people, no, you don't do that because that never gets counted. It never, you know, it, right. it it doesn't show up in the statistics at all. Mm -hmm. If you want to show that you protest against both of them, you vote for the candidate that's on the ballot who's mm -hmm. likely to get the most votes mm -hmm. on his or her own. Right. That's so, probably what's going to lead me, uh, by the way, I'm just speaking for myself, not for the Research Council, what's probably going to lead me to vote Libertarian for I'll the first libertarian time. I'll vote Libertarian if I have no other choice. Yeah, I don't if I have like no other choice. Much. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of a lot of their, but just <laughs> Libertarians a, cost me my Senate seat. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I still so hold a lot of... So not a big of, fan there. I still hold a grudge about that. So how, how did we get here? I keep thinking, you know... Um, Bill Clinton, not a perfect human being, um, elect, re-elected or elected, re-elected. Barack Obama, not a perfect human being, although I am a big fan of Barack Obama. Um, w. I'm not a big fan of W. <laughs> you aren't? Oh, no. darn, I'm going to have to cancel that order for best president ever <laughs> with his shirt, with his picture on. Well, not for me. You can order yeah. it for yourself. Okay. And your family, yeah. Exactly. Um, but how did? Are we expecting too much, or are these really just the? Has the bar moved so low? Um, and really, I keep thinking, how did we get here? Is it this information age where we just know too much? Can anyone live up to the expectations we set versus what we know? I think you uh, hit on a good point there. It's this. In the information age, we end up knowing too much, uh, and and <clears throat> because negative comments have more news value than positive comments do, it's the negative comments that get you know that that that, that get the press. Uh, one interesting part of the United States, and one uh, I think tribute toward the ability of most of the American people to deal with issues like this is we will now have, uh, as we have had during most of my lifetime at least, we'll have four full months of each of them calling the other all kinds of names. And the day the election is over, we'll feel very good about the winner and say, oh, we're off. we will have probably expectations that are too high. And in many respects, we are. You know, we're not electing God. You know, we're you know we're electing essentially a presiding officer for the country, with significant powers, but with very limited, uh, with distinctly you know, limited powers, and uh, he can't wipe the tears from everyone's eyes. <laughs> that's that's true, right? That's I I think I posted on Facebook that, um, or actually it was Frank Luntz had posted something on Twitter about um, about the feeling of the electorate and I, and I you know I said well then I guess that half the country is going to be very cranky for at least four years after the election mm, like, mm -hmm. because you know you can't wipe the tears from everybody's eyes but it seems like it was about the mood of the electorate and people are not in a good mood and which, which is striking because 
the economy is allegedly doing well and um I think there are a lot prices of prices are lower yeah. than they were. I think there are a lot of people, well as you were saying, you know, people who still haven't recovered from the Great Recession. They're underemployed or still unemployed, or they just feel really unsettled by the whole thing and they don't feel like anything's really um really permanent that they can't feel secure in where they are, even if they may be doing okay right now. Um, uh, One of the things, Slade, when you were talking about the polarization, how there are fewer centrists or moderates on both sides, both Republican and Democrat, in Congress. um, Yes, in Congress, not necessarily among the population. Right, yes, in Congress. And... um, and thus, they're not really, they're, you know, they're not representing the wider population. So then what you get is a, you know, party organizations that tend to just serve their base. And then you get a situation where they're oh, not the really... party sp- organizations are the base. Yeah. Now, yes. They're not someone who's serving the base, you know, to keep them sullen if not mutinous right they come from the base they come from uh, the base right you don't get into the party organization unless you're unless you're from the base. the base and so the you know the bases seem to be not and this is a blanket generalizations but tend to be more polarized and then you get you get electeds in congress who aren't speaking so much to the middle and then you have sort of a vacuum and that's how you end up with you know a donald trump because he's able to sort of demagogue, whether it's on trade or, um, you know, finding scapegoats. Well, Donald Trump is something new. Yeah. We don't really have uh, our close precedent to that. Yeah. And Donald Trump was uh, um, created very largely by the way that the party inadvertently and the news media, particularly television, advertently mm-hmm. set up the way that the debates you know, you know, yeah. w- went on. Uh, and uh, How did the party inadvertently? Well, the party looked at four years ago and saw you know, when there was an incumbent president, so no contest there on the Republican side, there were a bunch of candidates and they they must have had thirty or forty debates. Yeah. They just they had they had debates everywhere, mm-hmm. and the debates very quickly became very negative. Mm-hmm. So that by the time you got to the convention itself, the the the, the winner uh, was seriously hobbled, mm-hmm. and seriously handicapped by the time they got a winner. Uh, so the Republican Party says, "Okay, we'll cut down on the number of debates." And we'll try to do them fairly, and we'll judge who's in them by where they stand in the polls mm. and, 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 and the like. But the guy who was first in the polls to begin with was able to exploit that ability. Uh, and, uh, and so the debates were never fair in the sense of giving each of the candidates an opportunity to state what uh, he or she was for. And... and <clears throat> One thing that's certain is come December and January, they'll be back to the drawing board about how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they should have done, in my view, uh, <coughs> was to take those original, say the original 10 candidates, if you were going to do that, put them all up on the podium where they did, have the questioners ask one question 
a question, whoever the first one was, whether it was foreign policy or health care or whatever, and give each of the candidates two minutes, three minutes, whatever the appropriate time was, to answer the question. And at the end of the three minutes, their microphone is turned off. Mm-hmm. So they can't interrupt one another, right? Uh, and they can't and and they can't go over mm-hmm. and let each of them, however long the debate uh, that was going to last, ask three or four questions. They wouldn't cover every issue, but there'd be another debate. Another debate you know, to cover uh, other issues. Yeah, obviously, to do all that, but the only way to make that work right is to have them talking about issues rather than personalities yeah. uh, and, 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 and give them equal opportunity. Some of them still would have bombed. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, for example, early on, I very much favored Governor Walker. And he showed in the very first debate he wasn't ready for prime time. No, no. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> yeah. And it wouldn't have mattered if he'd gotten as much time no. as, as anyone else. And so, and some of the others did that way. Some of them were pretty good or would have been pretty good had they had an opportunity to say anything mm-hmm. of, a sub, of a substantive nature. Yeah. Uh, it's very much so a we are we are in you know, a, a, a time of uh, we're overly stimulated. Uh, there's so much going on, you know, all of the time that we have to work as hard as we possibly can to make the opportunities equal and to try to see to it uh, that the candidates, at least when they're on public display that way, are speaking about issues rather than personalities. Uh, And somebody's going to be smart enough to figure out how to do that, and we'll have a higher quality politics when it happens. In some way, I think, if they had, sorry, if they had a longer time it's like certainly if you had you know well of course he could turn it into a, a speechifying moment but if he had to actually answer the question well if someone held him accountable to answering right. the question also mm-hmm. he's not been held accountable nobody has really held his feet to the fire i watched the 60 minutes interview with donald trump and mike pence and and um donald trump said that he opposed the rock the iraq war from the beginning and it's on record that he didn't he didn't and leslie stahl never followed up with him Uh, so you know just right there i mean he's the not party nominee he named his vice president or maybe he was the about to be the presumed nominee it was right before the convention but why why didn't someone of leslie stahl's stature do her job and that's where you know you mentioned um the media has a has played a a purposeful role in promoting donald trump for Mm. ratings and well you didn't say all of this but i'm extrapolating for ratings and entertainment value um and that's why we are where we are Um, it is its primary focus is not enlightening the voter no clearly not um but i was also thinking about uh redistricting and how we get a more moderate or um a better representation in congress so that we have we can actually pass laws and send and feel good about them um and have people in congress who are representing 
most of the people, not just the parties. What's it going to take? And is it possible to replicate what Redistricting right. has a bad and undeserved reputation. I've been in the redistricting business most, mm -hmm. of, you know, most of my career, including this last time around. Mm -hmm. uh, and logical districts are overwhelmingly one party in redistricting both for Congress and, and for the state legislature here in the state of Washington. As one of the two Republican representatives, I didn't care whether line, where lines were drawn in the city of Seattle. You couldn't. You couldn't create a competitive or, or, or um, bipartisan district in Seattle, nor could you create one in Chelan County. Right. Uh, on uh, you know, on uh, on the other hand, um, and we have in Washington State, in my view, the best redistricting system in the country, and it's the best because the two parties have got to talk to one another. There are only four voting members: two Republicans and two Democrats. Mm -hmm. And if the job is going to get done, you've got to come to an agreement. And every time we've used it, it's worked. So how do we, how do we, because I, I grew up in <clears throat> first Philadelphia, then we moved mm -hmm. to Florida. Mm -hmm. Florida's a mess. Um, <laughs> Shock. <laughs> and, and I mean, the courts have ruled that it's a yeah. mess. Um, so how, how can we move the Washington system? Because I agree, I think that for the most part, it, it is a, it works? It's a model, and that's that's a, you know th th that's a good question, and I wish I had a better answer to it. Uh, <clears throat> it was created here because redistricting was so awful in this state when I was in the legislature, and for a while thereafter, it got to a point. I believe it was in it was in the early 1980s that a Republican governor vetoed a Republican redistricting bill, uh, and. Uh, the, the legislature threw up its hands and proposed a constitutional amendment to create a commission. Now, of 50 states, there are probably 20 states that have commissions, but that doesn't do the job necessarily because most of them, the typical state commission has two, sometimes three, members of each party appointed to it. They pick a chairman, and the chairman is the tie-breaking vote, and the way I put it is one party always picks wrong. You know, the, the, the two parties fight with one another. They don't come to an agreement, by and large. And ultimately, the chairman, the chairperson, uh, decides one side or another or writes it one way or another. We do it that way, except that the chairman doesn't have a vote. The chairman simply presides. So the two parties have to sit down and, and bargain with one another. Now, what that absolutely guarantees is that there won't be a partisan gerrymander. The state won't be distorted uh, between the two parties in either the legislature or, or Congress. What it does not guarantee is that there won't be a pro-incumbent gerrymander. Uh, and certainly, because we're appointed by incumbents, uh, we paid attention to, to where they lived. But if you look at the lines in the state of Washington and look at the lines in North Carolina or Virginia or Maryland, uh, you know, for example, ours just are, are simply overwhelmingly better. So how do you get that adopted uh, elsewhere? You can get it done in states that have initiative. And that's where I'd concentrate in the beginning. In every state that it can be done by initiative, uh, you get good government groups like the League of Women Voters to sponsor a, a system 
you know, like our own. California adopted one that is fairly fairly similar to our own, but it did it by it was a referendum or you know or an initiative uh, because legislators who are in charge of redistricting in 30 states don't want to give up the ability to govern their own district lines. So how you do it there, I don't know. I'm in fairly frequent correspondence with a group of good government people in Virginia who'd like to do it there. I think they have an impossible task. They can't do it by initiative, and it's very difficult to imagine the Virginia legislature doing it. However, there's another... Uh, if, if you speak about getting people to speak across party lines or to take a more, more broad view, uh, more significant than redistricting is the top two primary. In the top two primary, here in this state, as soon as these election primary election results are done, we will have a dozen to 15 of the 49 legislative districts in which there are races between two members you know, of, uh, of the same party. Well, if they're Republican, one of them is going to be more moderate toward the center than the other. If they're Democrats, one of them will be a little bit closer to the center than another. And the great advantage is everybody's vote counts because with a, a partisan system, Two-thirds of the legislative districts in the state, once the primary is over, the election is done. Mm -hmm. The, the right. minority party candidate has no chance. Mm -hmm. And so your vote doesn't really count. Uh, but if you get two members of the same party, your vote still counts. That's, That's right. true. That's and a good it point. Treats, mm -hmm. it treats the voters more equitably and gives them greater choices. And it has at least a modest tendency uh, to, to make the general results more moderate. So that leads me to, to think about the caucuses, the presidential caucuses, and um, how a lot of people... Too bad um, the Democratic Party isn't Democratic, isn't it? <laughs> I, yeah, that was really that was, lame. Um, well, I liked my caucus, but... Yeah. <laughs> but um, I will say that I opted not to go through the process. So mm -hmm. I, sort of, I ran my precinct, and then I yeah. encouraged other people to... Mm -hmm become delegates and move through the process because right. I knew that I wouldn't be able to invest the time yeah. and um, and then find the money if eventually I was elected to go to Philadelphia. To go to Philadelphia. Just yeah. the time and the money and all of that. Um, it is consuming of both time and money right. in large amounts. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it is um, prohibitive mm -hmm. for, for, and it's not what people think of when they think of democracy, but then there are people who say this is not about democracy, it's how parties choose their candidates. So how do we do this if we're all about the part if it's about the parties? So the two the top two took the top two primaries took power away from the parties. Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do in the presidential in this state? Do we move away from caucus? Well, the Republicans have a binding vo primary vote, right? Not yes, a caucus. Yeah, the caucus. I don't think. How did no, the, the that was how delegates mean, were. The Republicans awarded? have both. Right. Yeah. Uh, they have caucuses that work very much like the Democratic caucuses do, and that's the way you get to go first to the state convention and then to the national convention. Right. But the Republicans passed a rule uh, this time for the first time 
that all of the delegates would be bound by the results of the primary, the primary. for one ballot. Mm -hmm. uh, however, the, 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 the two systems are not compatible in one respect or another because the caucus system uh, ended up going for Cruz. Cruz was the only candidate who really organized well in the state, and he won all of the delegates who were bound, however, to vote for Trump on the first ballot if it had, if it had ended up being a, a contested convention. But on the second ballot, they wouldn't have done so. Right. They'd have gone for him. So Republicans still have a caucus system, and the only way that you could make it that you could make it truly democratic would be to say that the primary election not only senses selects a, a candidate for president, a favorite for president, but that uh, the, the presidential candidate names delegates to the national convention who are distributed as per the primary election itself. And if you got 40% of the vote in the primary, you'd get not just a pledge for one one ballot of 40% of the, of the delegates, you'd have the delegates right. who were for you and had campaigned for you going back to the convention itself. I had another question, and it slipped my mind. <laughs> no, okay. so, here, so here we are. We've, the conventions are behind us. We've got Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. Um, first of all, I guess on the on the I keep harping on the Donald Trump side. What? How do you think it came to be that someone? Now, he, granted, as you said, he is sort of an outlier and a, a fluke, but he does have a lot of views that are run counter to Republican thinking, his views on foreign policy, you know, his recent comments on, well, maybe we'd help the Baltic states if they paid up, and um, his views on trade, you know, especially for us here in, you know, in Washington, where trade is so important. Um, what? How do you think it came to be that so many people glommed on to, why did they glom on him, aside from the obvious celebrity factor, when he holds these views that are so counter. politically incorrect. Incorrect, yeah. And you know, so many people feel, feel ignored by what they consider to be the establishment. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you can't talk about this subject, you can't talk about that subject, mm -hmm. you've got to use these words, you kind of use that words. The hell with it. They say, yeah. here's a guy who says what he thinks. Mm -hmm. And they vote for him because he said what he thinks, whether they've thought about it or not yeah. at, at all. And probably they've thought about it about as much as Donald Trump has. Right. <laughs> <laughs> in, 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 in fact, but he was just plain different. And in the formative times of the campaigns, since he had upwards of 16 opponents who probably were almost all closer to one another than they were to him, mm -hmm. at least in the way they, at least in the way they went to, uh, you know, at it. Uh, he could win primaries with 28% or 35% of the sure. vote, and it just, it just became a snowball going down, uh, yeah. you know, downhill. Yeah, at a certain point, people think, well, I've got to, you know, and almost be on all the of side. the other candidates stayed in the race two or three primaries beyond when they should have stayed in the mm -hmm. race and they, they looked at it uh, um, uh, objectively. But it's, 
hard to blame him for that. You know, you run for president for all those years. You don't you you, you don't want to quit at the first thought that uh, that yeah, you, you, you have you, a problem. You think like uh, who's the whoever the character I'm dating myself. The character was who who played uh, Michael Dukakis in 88. John Lovett. John Lovett. Oh, it was John Lovett. He's John like, Lovett, yeah. I'm losing to this guy. You know, they probably thought that. Like, yeah. And I thought, too, because I thought, gosh, is he going to win? I thought, well, is this going to happen? So you think, well, I better stay in for the next time that Donald Trump says something outrageous, and then finally his support bottoms I was, out. I was in a group of about 20 people watching the very first debate. When the first debate was over, we said, well, that's it. Yeah. That's Trump. He's done. <laughs> right. We were, boy, were we smart. <laughs> but, you know, the thing you say about I've, I've everybody, been, I've been thinking about the, you know, the whole politically correct thing, because I, you know, I can't stand political correctness and I can't stand. There's like a new I felt, you know, when I was going to college in the late 80s, early 90s, it was sort of the first wave of political correctness. And it kind of. I don't know. I mean, I graduate, so I don't know. But now there's this new brand. Like, you can't say any if it. And we're not talking about people who are saying like they're not members of the KKK. They're just like conservatives who are stating their opinion. You can't say that. That hurts my feelings. You know, you're part of the male patriarchy, and it's like enough. We, you know, you can't. You know, it's like a, the dictatorship of political correctness. Right, dissension and, is not allowed. Yeah, and nobody can be uncomfortable. Yeah, nobody no can, can be, be uncomfortable. I mean, even <laughs> even Barack Obama's spoken out against this. Yes. this new, but. Yeah, I mean, and there are people who are just like, like you said, to hell with that, you know. And this guy Trump, he's he is entertaining. You know, when you watch his speeches, at least in the early he days, was. Now he he's was just entertaining. Scary. Now he's scary. You know, the Mexican <laughs> quote, Mexican judge, and the the Russia thing and everything. But yeah, I mean, there was something refreshing, and and you know, at least you know, politics is so has become so much more hidebound, and oh, everything's done in these perfectly polished little bits and part of that's because of the really constant more media scrutiny and scrutiny from the internet but um but yeah i mean i can i from from the earliest stages i could see the appeal of him just on a gut level um and like you said then it just started snowballing so the entertainment aside i mean this is a man who for a long time was in search of barack obama's Birth certificate. Even Ann Coulter thought that was over the top. Right. (laughs) So I mean, so but and and that doesn't it didn't matter. I mean, you know, there were there were people taking him seriously and still taking him seriously, and he has said nothing substantive Mm -mm. yet. But I remembered the question that I was going to ask (laughs) you: Um, the electoral college. It seems to me that um, we're at a at a, a we have an opportunity after this election because there are all of these young people who are engaging in a way they never did. There's a, a lot of the Bernie people who um, don't. And what really makes me laugh is that the people who have been involved want to explain <laughs> to the, the these young people who have never been involved and are a bit resentful that they want to change things. But I don't think that we can go back at least on the D side. I think that just paying lip service is not going to work. Um, I, but how do, what do we do about, because, you know, the redistricting and the top two, as you were saying, give, makes every vote count. 
that it matters. So, but with the electoral college, we we don't have that same opportunity to have our vote count in the same way. Well, your vote certainly counts. As a matter of fact, the smaller the state you live in, the more it counts. So we yeah. should all move to Rhode Island. <laughs> <laughs> no, Wyoming is, oh, right, right. is the most okay, extreme, gotcha. exa- most the extreme example of, uh, of that. And of course, the electoral college yeah, was created because we were a federation. You know, it was thirteen independent, uh, thirteen independent uh, states. Uh, I've always felt that just about all the cures that people have come up with that are are worse than the disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, one advantage, and and there are various ways they've talked about doing it. That is splitting the electoral college votes proportionately to uh, the vote in a particular state, or um, having each congressional district have one electoral vote and then the state have two over and above that. Or if you want pure democracy, you just have one election, just popular vote in the country as a whole. Uh, Now, in my view, that would guarantee that the people in the small states never see a presidential candidate. Right, Uh, Mm, right. This way, Wyoming... Now, Wyoming may be sort of one party, but nonetheless, there are three votes there. And if you think you have a chance of getting those three votes, you're going to go to Wyoming uh, or Kansas or the like. Uh, With a strict popular vote, you'll be traveling from uh, New York to Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., to Miami, to to, to, to Los Angeles, and and so on. And even a state like Washington, which is and certainly is well in the top 25 in population, is it's going to be very questionable that any attention will, will be paid Aside to us. Aside from fundraisers. And, <laughs> and, and, and that, of course, goes back to what we're talking about now, how people get nominated in the first place. They have to do it by, you know, I'm continuously outraged by the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire get to go yes. first. Uh, uh, when yes. I was in the Senate, almost each of my terms, I introduced a bill uh, that would have four primaries, I think March, April, May, June, or February, March, April, May, with 12 or 13 states in each one of them, the four regions of the country, Absolutely. and then switch them from one election to, uh, yeah, uh, to another, and uh, really get the candidates to be in all parts of the country and in all places that were any anything anything close, but I'll tell you, members of Congress from Iowa and New Hampshire and a couple of other earlier ones, boy, are they fierce defenders of the fact that their people get more influence than anyone else does? I think it's time to resurrect that. Right? Big who's going to carry that? This? How, who's going to carry that now? There are always <laughs> members who are from that. If if I remember correctly. You know, one of the people who agreed with me was the Democratic senator from Oregon, Ron Wyden. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. maybe maybe we can talk to Ron. Let's get Ron on the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he can carry the torch now. Yes. Um, okay, so I've asked a bunch of, I'm kind of obsessed with, why Donald Trump? Um, and again, <laughs> these are just my own views. Um, what about the, so looking at the Democrats, I mean, I was actually talking with someone this morning about, I'm actually kind of grateful that, sorry, no no offense, Randy, but that the Democratic Party came back from the brink of potentially, I don't think it was ever, it wasn't ever close, but, you know, Bernie Sanders promising basically free stuff to everybody, free college, free whatever. 
Um, and we're going to break up the banks to pay for it. Again, apologies, Randy. You don't have to apologize. Um, we can You know, and all these just completely unattainable, uh, ridiculous promises that he was making, which I think is one of the things that led to these people being so upset, because they were promised, like, everything. Um, so, I mean, on the one hand, you can say, okay, well, at least the, Demo the Democratic Party kind of, you know, uh, righted itself by... Um, by nominating Hillary Clinton, but it's as you were saying at the beginning, on and Bernie as you Sanders said, platform. what's that? Yes, on, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, and that's the problem. Like she's promising, um, is is it free college no. for a hundred twenty-five thousand dollars or less family? I missed that one, but, but I think Stanford actually does that now. Right, but I mean, that's why my that's child her, yeah, will be going to Stanford. Yeah, he's going to spend every waking hour studying. the one percent of the applicants <laughs> yeah, who get exactly. in, he will be in that. <laughs> but what's your take on like what's what do you think the status of the? Uh, you know, you spent a lot of time around Democrats. You got along with uh, Democrats when you were in the U.S. Senate. What's your your take on the current state of the Democratic Party? Well, I, I just come back to what I started out with. The two parties are mirror, mirror images of one another. Mm -hmm. And neither you know, represents the views of a majority of the American people. That's why I think to have a third party candidate for president this year who is a serious one, you know, who, who right. is seriously qualified. Any ideas? Um, <laughs> or does it have to stay? From my perspective, to make it, you, 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 we could make a statement by resurrecting someone like Romney, oh, but yeah. you wouldn't have a chance of winning one. No, to have a chance kind of, of a winning, dead. you'd have to have one who has appealed to Democrats equally with Republicans. John Kasich, my favorite. Pardon? Colin Powell. John Kasich. He was my guy. He has what about negatives. Colin Powell? Does he John Kasich? With Democrats, yes. Oh, interesting. He presents well because he's not Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, but anyway, go, sorry, go ahead, Slade. Well, he won enough Democrats to get 65% in the state of Ohio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think he'd wipe the floor with Hillary, uh, but that's just my opinion. Probably someone retired, some, someone who held office but doesn't hold office now. Right, right. Um, what do you think? Okay, so say Hillary Clinton wins. And the day after, whatever day that is after the election, if you were counseling, you know, after Barack Obama won, the Republicans were like, um, we hope he fails and blah, blah, blah. And there were a lot of problems with Barack Obama. Like, he never followed through on his promises of bipartisanship, in my opinion. I think he tried. I don't think he tried enough. I think he was like, oh, they're not just automatically fawning all over me, so I'm just going to give up and do it. But what, like, what would you advise Republicans to do after, say, Hillary, if Hillary Clinton well, wins? I don't, I, don't I, I can't answer that question because I don't know what their situation will be. Right. Will oh, they that's have true. a majority in the Senate? Will mm -hmm. they have a majority in the House? Will they have a majority in only one of them? Will they have a majority in neither? Right. Which was the case, of course, with. Obama's yeah. uh, you know, you know, first two years. Uh, I'll tell you what I've been advising my Republican friends in the Senate without having the slightest uh, impact uh, you know, on it uh, for at least the last two or three years was to abolish the filibuster rule. Oh, mm -hmm. interesting. Because 
the filibuster rule protected the minority as long as it was going to be the filibuster rule. The worst service that Harry Reid has uh, inflicted on the, on the country, in my opinion, uh, was to get a ruling that the rule itself could be changed by a majority vote, mm. by, by 51 votes. Mm. Now, he only did it for a limited number of, you know, of, of activities, but the filibuster rule is now a corpse lying on the floor just tripping people as they you know, <laughs> as they walk into the as they walk into the senate uh, i i always felt that it was good to require major policy changes in the country uh, to get a supermajority vote to have right. to have some uh, uh, support uh, from both parties and for a hundred years that's the way it was there might be one filibuster in a congress you know now they're 120. Right. They just, yeah. the, every every bill is is held up by them, and I've talked to Senator McConnell and said, get rid of it. You. One of the reasons for Trump is Republicans won two straight elections, won control of Congress by saying all the things they were going to do that were different, and they didn't do them. Didn't do them. Yeah. They didn't do them because they were filibustered and they never got to the president. If if Barack Obama had had to veto 30 or 40 substantive bills, there would have been a distinction between the two parties that we know those distinctions exist, the three of us here, but most people said you're just all the same damn people. You mm -hmm. never get anything never get anything done at mm -hmm. all. Uh, and uh, uh, under those circumstances, I think there would be there would be an, an incentive to work together that does not exist at, now. Does, does not exist at the present time, and uh, I think Congress would recover from a 14 or an 8 percent acceptability rating. Uh, so maybe it would be wonderful if we're up to 40. 40, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't seen those days in a while. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. So. I know we're probably running short on time, but I started thinking about the Supreme Court um, That's and what I was gonna ask. Congress um, punting on Merrick Garland uh, because you Congress mentioned that you punt spoke. On him. They rejected him. In fact, <laughs> well, they haven't actually no, they didn't done anything. Well, so, are, so when you're because when you're speaking with Mitch McConnell, have you spoken about Merrick Garland or why they're not moving well, to confirm? I don't need to speak or about it. I know perfectly to, well why they aren't. Of course, they shouldn't. Uh, for a, for a uh, lame duck president with an uncertain uh, with an uncertain presidential race, it should be the next president who makes that determination. Oh, uh, I I I had a set of rules, personal rules on presidential confirmations, uh, even though the constitutional language is the same at all of them. They went sort of like this. I would vote for. For all practical purposes, any presidential nominee to a position that served at the pleasure of the president. I think once the election is over, the new president has the right to have people working for him or for her uh, that he that he or she wishes. Uh, when they served for fixed terms that went beyond the president's term, I'd, I'd look at them somewhat more carefully, but there'd still be a presumption on it. When they served for lifetime. I think he's he has nominated Merrick Garland because he agrees with him philosophically. 
I don't agree with them philosophically. I vote against them. Uh, Interesting. You know, that's a, that's a lifetime opponent, uh, appointment. They're making policy. They're engaging in politics. We've seen that just in the course of the last two or three weeks. And uh, um, McConnell's rule, or the general rule that nothing would happen this year, came at a time when there was only one candidate the Republicans possibly had who would lose to Hillary, and now we've nominated that uh, you know that person. So it may be that Garland isn't any worse than anyone else, but it, uh, if, uh, if, if Hillary is elected, I'm perfectly willing to let Hillary make that decision rather than, uh, uh, rather than Barack Obama. Interesting. No, but the, the Supreme Court justices don't get, um, uh, don't get confirmed in the last year of a presidency. Huh. I'm trying to, now I, I asked the, opened the bottle, but now I can't remember if there were other presidents who nominated and had confirmed Supreme or, or, Court justices. Or they have, in, in, a, in a sense, the most famous of all of them was Chief Justice Marshall. Hmm, right. Marshall was nominated and confirmed on the last day of the, of, of the presidency of John Adams, the last day of the Congress that had been elected <laughs> three years earlier wow. uh, was, was in session. I think they may have had a little more... Well, they, things were contentious then. I mean, they, they were... They well, did, that was a tremendously they, contentious person. Right, they race. did real battle mm-hmm. yeah. um, mm-hmm. and destroyed people's lives um, in different ways. Yeah, I'm reading Hamilton right now. I'm caught up yeah, in Hamilton so fever. Burr shot Hamilton a little a few yes. years later. Yeah. So, um, but... Uh, Burr tried to steal the presidency. Right. Yeah. I, I, oh, really? I didn't realize it's that. It's fascinating. Uh, so, so the Electoral College then, you just voted for two people. And whoever came in first got to be president and second vice president. Oh, gotcha. Oh, so right, yes, Jefferson of and Burr were running on a ticket. Everyone knew one was for president and one was for vice president, except Burr. <laughs> he got as many votes as Jefferson did, so it went to the House. Wow. And it wasn't until one of the other party decided that this was just too much to take mm-hmm. that Jefferson became president. Became president. Imagine how different things might have been. I know. But that's another show. Yeah, exactly. The what if. <laughs> yeah. So who do you think is going to win the presidential race? Hillary. Hillary, yeah. That's pretty much right. How about you, Randy? I'm thinking Hillary, but I'm not taking it for granted. Right. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I feel, um, I actually feel frightened at the possibility of a Trump presidency. So um, That keeps you be, motivated, huh? It keeps me motivated. And Slate, are you going to vote? I mean, feel free to defer, but because you you mentioned it in the op-ed, do you think you'll vote uh, third party, libertarian? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll vote. Th- I'll vote third party. I hope, oh, I will hope they have if, a better third party yeah, than the libertarians. Yeah, if there's a, otherwise, because uh-huh. I assume you won't be voting for what is it, Jill Stein, <laughs> on the Green Party. <laughs> I saw a Jill Stein bumper strip this morning. Of course, uh-huh. I can't roll my eyes. Back enough. Back enough. The whole Jill Stein uh-huh. candidacy. Yeah. She's pretty crazy. I think Shama Sawant's a big fan of her. I think she's been trying to convince people wow. to vote for uh, Jill Stein instead of voting for I don't for think you Hillary. start out running for president. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Even if right. you're a doctor, you don't start out running for president. <laughs> yeah, that shouldn't be your first thing. Well, Donald Trump did. <laughs> and even if you're Donald Trump, you don't start out running for president, but it's worked for him so far. I, yeah, so far. We'll see. All right, well, Slade, thank you very much for joining us. We'd love to have you on again. We never did get to baseball, did we? <laughs> no. Well, that's oh, but we'll be, we'll be, if we do this at the right time, we'll see where the Mariners are in the season. Maybe we'll be that's talking World fine. Series. Mm-hmm. That would be wonderful. <laughs> exactly, yeah, because we w- definitely want to have you back to talk about just your incredible life and all the stuff you've done and your wisdom, any well, wisdom you have to pass down to all of us. And maybe we can do it from Safeco Field. Ooh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'll bet, I'll bet Slade could hook us up, huh? He's got some friends there. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we could have some beers while we're... <laughs> it's a, that's a component of the show that we keep trying to work in. We keep trying to incorporate booze into the uh, into the podcast. Well, this has been an honor. Thank you Absolutely. very much. Well, thank you. It's been a joy to talk to the two of you. Thank you, Slade, and thank you to our listeners. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Policy Today is a production of the Washington Research Council dedicated to providing timely, credible research and policy analysis supporting economic vitality and private sector job creation. For more information, go to researchcouncil.org.